MacCast, Sunday, May 1st, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to another episode of the MacCast. Back here with you from South Dakota in the Midwest. Yeah, we moved a little while ago. You probably got the news by now. Getting used to the weather here. It is a little bit chilly, a little bit cold, a little bit wet, <laughs> a little bit more wet than California, uh, which is a good thing, really. And uh, we are really, really enjoying it. I'm getting settled in. I've got the new studio here and getting things dialed in. We've got a little more work to do, but we will get there. Uh, but for now, looking over things, we have a ton of great stuff to talk about in Apple and Mac news. Apple had their second fiscal quarter results, and uh, I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that, of course. We're going to talk about uh, what's happening with iPhones and iPhone 13 shipments, which seem to be waffling a little bit. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll talk about it. And there's some products that have some issues and some fixes and maybe some more issues with other products and firmware updates for even more products. We'll get into all the details of those. And Apple has finally released their self-repair program. So we now have details about that and how it works and how you can get uh, your parts from Apple. So we'll give you all the nitty gritty on that one. And then we have some Apple Watch uh, rumors to discuss as well. And that'll round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some more of your feedback on photo library cleanup. I got some great tips and tricks and ideas from you. We're going to talk about Thunderbolt and interfaces and bottlenecks. And it's something I haven't really covered before here on the MacCast, but I got a great question this week from a listener and we'll dive in and try and help him out. And then we're going to talk about banking apps and uh, try to get some recommendations for a listener out there who's looking to switch from his current app. And that will round out this week's MacCast. So like I said, should be a good one. I think we should just dive right into these quarterly numbers. Wow, Apple this week announced the their earnings for the second fiscal, fiscal quarter of 2022. And once again, they wowed us. Yep. Wow. I think I've said it a few times now. They had a 9% increase in revenue year over year, coming in at $97.3 billion with a profit of 25 billion that was a record for the second fiscal quarter ever breaking down their products year over year by growth it may or may not be surprising to hear that services and Macs were the big winners services grew 17.2 percent year over year earning 19.82 billion dollars for the quarter in fact apple added over 165 million subscribers over the last year and subscribers now sit at 825 million across all of their services. So a big growth there. Unfortunately, Apple doesn't break it down by individual service. They just have kind of that big number. So we don't really know, you know, is it Apple TV? Is it iCloud? I have a feeling a lot of it is iCloud and iCloud services, but doesn't matter. It's generating a lot of revenue for Apple, obviously. Max came in at 10.43 billion. That was a 14.3% year-over-year growth. 
Then you have wearables, home, and accessories, $8.82 billion, up 12.2% year-over-year. iPhone still tops in terms of total revenue at $50.57 billion year-over-year, but growth there, just 5.5%. So iPhone's that big mature product, generates a lot of revenue for Apple, largest by percentage, uh, but growth not as big as what's going on with services. And then iPad saw the smallest growth, just 2% year-over-year, generating $7.65 billion. Not too shabby for the, you know, kind of the product generating the least amount of revenue for Apple. Overall revenue and individual revenue for each product category were records for Apple's March quarter in every category except for iPad. Tim Cook did comment that the iPad in particular was hit by, quote, very significant supply constraints, supply constraints across the board. And as a matter of fact, Apple CFO Luca Mistreri also said that he expects supply constraints to continue to impact Apple product sales into the third quarter. As we noted, Macs did particularly well for Apple. And in the call, Apple said that over half of its new Mac customers in the quarter were new to Mac, so switching over from other platforms, so that's great news. In fact, Apple has been able to keep ahead of global PC shipment declines with the success of Apple Silicon and product updates to lines like the MacBook Pro, along with the new Mac Studios, all doing very, very well for the company. Uh, As a matter of fact, for the first quarter of 2022, CounterPoint Research said this week that Apple was able to grow shipments by 8%, That's despite an overall overall decline in PC shipments of 4.3%. They also did very well in converting customers to iPhone. Tim Cook claiming they had a record level of upgraders during the quarter, saying that they, quote, grew switchers in the strong double digits. And industry growth for smartphones showed a similar situation for Apple. Firms like Strategy Analytics, Canalys, and IDC all kind of disagree on the exact figures of growth, but they all show that Apple was the only company to experience growth in the smartphone category worldwide uh, globally last year. As a matter of fact, Canalysis thinks that Apple iPhone shipments were up 8% and they were able to scoop up about 18% of the global smartphone market share. That's while other companies are seeing smartphone uh, shipment declines in the same period. So overall, Apple having a really, really great quarter. We'll have to see how they do in the third quarter. It's going to be a hard act to follow up, but uh, they may be able to pull it off with a bunch of new products and things in the lineup. So obviously, iPhone sales did very well last quarter. And one of the things that we've been talking about is whether or not Apple's having to cut back on iPhone shipments. We've heard them about them cutting possibly back on iPhone SE shipments because it wasn't doing that well. But then last week, we also, if you remember, heard from Loop Capital saying that Apple was cutting back on iPhone build numbers for the iPhone 13, that they were going to they were going to crank them down for 2022. Now, DigiTimes at the same time was not having any of it. They claimed that there were no signs of Apple slowing down. And this week, as a matter of fact, they backed that up, claiming that Apple is actually expanding its iPhone 13 production 
for the second quarter of 2022. So iPhone 13 sales looking like they're probably continuing to be strong. In fact, they say that production of high-end models, the iPhone 13 Pro and the iPhone 13 Pro Max, could be increased by about 10 million units. So that seems to indicate that Apple's thinking that they're going to have pretty strong iPhone sales going into the third quarter. Apple also has reportedly stepped up iPhone 13 production in India. A report claims that iPhone production grew by 50% year year over year in the first quarter of 2022 in India. And then looking to this year's iPhone 14, we continue to get leaks and information about the size and shape of this year's models. We've been talking about uh, the fact that the mini is probably on its way out and you're going to have two 6.1 inch models in a standard and a pro version and then same thing for the max you're going to get a 6.7 inch standard model and a 6.7 inch pro model now on the pro side of things it looks like from some display weeks some display leaks excuse me that showed up this week uh, they're confirming that the pro models will be slightly taller with a tweaked aspect ratio going from 19.59 to 20 by 9 to accommodate that new pill plus punch hole notchless design that we're expecting for the display. So no more notch on the pro models, but the same leaks also seem to confirm that the notch will remain on the standard non-pro models. So there'll be kind of a big design differentiator this year between the non-pro and the pro models. So it'll be interesting to see if that drives more sales on the pro side of things. It'll really kind of tell the tale of have people really accepted the notch at this point or are they willing to pay a little bit more to get rid of that notch? Of course, other features could factor in there as well, especially camera systems and, and those sorts of things. So we'll have to wait and see what is completely announced. But it'll be an interesting year with some, uh, you know, again, design changes on the pro side. I know several of you in our community have one of those new Apple Studio displays. And they came out, what, a few weeks ago to a lot of fanfare, but then a little bit of criticism around the built-in wide-angle webcam that does center stage. It was not quite up to snuff or not quite up to the quality that most reviewers were expecting. It was a little bit soft, a little bit fuzzy, and Apple came out and said, hey, we are going to fix it. We're going to release a firmware update and that firmware did sh- update did show up this week, at least for uh, beta testers. There is a new version of the firmware available to beta testers. And does it fix the studio display webcam issue? Maybe. Apple released the update to supposedly address the quote-unquote poor quality webcam issues, but the results seem to be mixed, at least according to a number of people that have tried it out early. Now, to be fair, this is still a beta patch. I don't know if Apple will do some additional tweaks or not based on feedback from the beta program. You would hope that they would because it sounds like it's not quite dialed in perfect yet. Question is, can they dial it in perfectly? Because the issue may not, or it's looking like it may not be, software alone. The Apple Studio Display Firmware Update 
15.5 is the version and it does seem to go in and uh, tweak some of the webcam frameworks and also tweak some of the code within center stage i think that was according to nine to five mac they did a little bit of digging there the changes supposedly address the camera tuning uh, improved noise reduction contrast and framing uh, as a matter of fact, the cropping on center stage, according to a number of the reports, seems to be not as tight anymore. There also seems to be more contrast, and I personally think a little bit more sharpness, but really not a lot else. The overall image quality is still a little bit flat and not really sharp, not what you expect from an HD webcam. Now, part of the issue might just be Unfortunately, the limits of the hardware. Apple uses a 12 megapixel ultra wide lens, and that's so center stage can do its magic and actually crop in and follow you around. But it's that cropping and zooming that might be the issue. As you know, if you crop in digitally, you're reducing the number of pixels. So you're not getting that full 12 megapixel resolution. And having an ultra wide lens in there also means that that lens has a smaller aperture. So less light, you're going to get a little bit more grain and noise and those sorts of things. And those are some of the complaints that people are having. And especially when you're viewing that on that massive 5K 27 inch display, you're going to notice every little pixel being off. And so that might be part of the issue. But, you know, overall, I think Apple should have known better they could have done a better job uh, maybe done a higher res uh, a more higher resolution sensor larger aperture lens really addressed some of the issues with the hardware and that might be what it takes to ultimately really fix the issue now it remains to be seen or really i think it comes down to a matter of opinion whether you think the image looks good or not it definitely looks improved um, and one of the best things if you have one of these that you could do to improve that image quality uh, would be make sure you're using it in a well-lit space have good lighting and that's going to help that ultra-wide lens pick up more light so lower light's gonna kind of really show off some of the limitations of that camera and probably just something you're going to have to be aware of if you're a first adopter of the new studio display. Now, Apple could address it later with a new version of the studio display, but at least for now, they're going to have to do the best they can with software. And let's hope they can tweak it even a little bit more because the first step, this first version in the beta does look better. Uh, I think it's just not quite there yet. The question remains, will they be able to fully dial it in? And we're just going to have to wait and see. Apple also released a new minor firmware update for AirTag, AirTag firmware update 1.0.301, and this is the tweak uh, for the unwanted tracking sound, making it easier to help you locate an unknown AirTag. Specifically, they changed the tone sequence to be uh, or to use rather more of the loudest tones. AirTags, as you may know, have taken some heat especially in the press and media lately. There are a lot of stories of people being tracked unwantingly by AirTags, and that is something Apple is trying to address with this firmware update. They've actually made a number of improvements to the safety and security features. Um, don't worry if you don't have the updated firmware yet. It looks like it's being rolled out slowly and staggered, and Apple will not have all AirTags fully updated and live until uh, May 13th. 
And to get the updates, you will need to have an iPhone that's running the latest version of iOS, and your AirTags are going to need to be within Bluetooth range of your phone to receive the update. And then finally, unfortunately, it's looking like there are some complaints about strange noises emanating from some new Mac Studio models. This information is coming from the Mac Rumors forums, which is a great place uh, if you uh, need help or having issues with your Mac or your iOS devices. Check it out if you haven't before. But some customers in there are saying that their Mac Studio machines are making a high-pitched whining sound coming from somewhere near the fan, although they claim that it does seem to be separate from any fan noise, and fan noise tends to be minimal in the Mac Studio. So something else might be going on in there. It does appear to be limited, and most complaints seem to be centered around the M1 Max models, not the ultra versions. So it could be related to the cooling systems or something like that because those two versions have different versions of cooling. Remains to be seen what the issue might be, but obviously if you've been impacted by it, uh, let us know about it. I'm curious if we have members of the Mac cast community who have purchased new Mac studios who are hearing this uh, whiny noise issue. And even more so, you probably want to contact Apple or Apple support, go into your genius bar and see if that's something they can address. Maybe they can swap out your model. And hopefully it is a really limited uh, number of models that are impacted by this. But we'll kind of keep an eye on it and we'll see what the community has to say. Hopefully, again, it's not widespread. Apple this week did launch finally their self-repair program, at least for iPhones. They set up their website at selfservicerepair.com, and it doesn't necessarily look like an Apple website. It's actually not being run by Apple. The parts store is operated by a third-party company called Spot, but it is officially supported by Apple. And as a matter of fact, if you go on the website, you can order Apple Genuine Parts and Tools, and you can also get all of the manuals to do self-repair on your Apple products. Well, at least if those products are a model of iPhone SE, iPhone 12, or iPhone 13. That includes both the standard and the pro versions. So not all products, but hey, it's a start. And Apple does promise to be adding more supported products, including Macs with Apple Silicon chips in the future. So those are coming supposedly, I think, by the end of the year. Good news is that the tools and parts are exactly what Apple uses in its own authorized repair centers and uh, with uh, Apple authorized service providers. So you get the same exact tools. You get official parts, which is really, really great. Um, A lot of the tools are specialized and can be a little bit pricey. So Apple will also just rent you the toolkit for US $49 a week. So you don't have to purchase them, although you can purchase them through the website if you prefer. Some of those tools, like I said, are pretty costly. So uh, you'd have to really you know, be interested in doing repairs. Now, there is kind of good news and bad news with the program. The bad news is the parts can be almost as expensive or more expensive than just having Apple do the repair for you. Looking through the website, an iPhone 13 Pro display bundle, kind of the kit to replace your display, $269 US. If you pay Apple to do it, it's $279. 
For a battery replacement, the kit to do that is 71 bucks on the site, and Apple will charge you for an iPhone 13 Pro battery replacement, $69. But here's the good part again. So like I said, there's good and bad. You can actually send your old parts back to Apple for recycling, and they will give you credit back. So it does end up being cheaper. You just have to send the parts back. $33.60 for that display, so you get that back after you do your repair. Same kind of situation for the battery, $24.15 for the battery. So you will save a little bit of money, um, but you're doing the repair yourself. And the repairs, if you've ever worked on an iPhone, not for the faint of heart, but at least you can do it. And at least Apple is finally providing that support. Another cool thing is you can also get the official repair manuals in PDF form from the site. They have detailed instructions for using the tools, doing the repairs, and there are lots and lots of safety information and warnings in there. This is something that Apple had said for a long time about why they didn't really encourage self-service repair because there are dangerous components in there like the battery. You know, if you do the battery wrong, it can... it's can catch fire if it's damaged uh same thing with like screens and glass you've got sharp edges so uh they have a lot of tools that are specifically designed so that it minimizes any uh risks and um they give you some great tips like one thing i would have never thought about is they say have a big pile of sand around and that's so you can snuff the battery out if the battery does start to smolder or smoke or something like that i didn't know that's how you did that but great little tip in there so you can learn some things from these manuals too if you're interested the program is currently u.s only but apple does plan to roll it out to europe later this year and most people are happy that the program now it finally exists but advocates for self-repair like iFixit are still being critical of the program and i think rightfully so we need to kind of keep apple in check on this they say overall it's a good step forward but they do point out some of the limitations for example customers who buy parts need to enter your device their device serial number or IMEI number when you're ordering your parts and those parts can only be installed in that device as a matter of fact there's a whole activation you have to go through by contacting Apple once you've done your repair so they need to match everything up and pair everything up um, after installation so the worry is that, hey, they're going to kind of limit you or they could restrict you or they could uh, in the future, if they don't want to provide parts for or service for older models, they could kind of cut that off. Um, so they're still in control. And a lot of people who are into self-repair think that company shouldn't be involved at all. They should just sell you the parts, sell you the information and let you take it from there. So, you know, it's worth having that debate, I think, right? I think I think they have some fair points, but again, this is a good first step in the right direction, and hopefully we keep moving forward with this. Uh, I think it's just great you can finally get Apple official parts from Apple so you know you're getting good quality parts um, that are going to work with your device and you're not going to run into any issues. As far as the tools go, there's a lot of specialized tools, which is really cool too. I do wonder if we'll start to see some sites reverse engineer Apple's specialized tools now that they can get their hands on them potentially and maybe make them available for cheaper uh, to use with other aftermarket parts. Um, and even there, that could be a benefit because it could make doing repairs a lot safer for a lot of people. Um, and 
a lot easier. So, hey, there might be some other good side benefits that come out of this. Whether or not Apple likes that or not, that remains to be seen. And we'll have to see if they try to shut any of that down. But I I have to imagine we'll start to see um, some of these specialized tools show up from uh, other third parties. And uh, we'll have to see how Apple reacts to that. But overall, good news on this program being finally released. And then finally in the news for this week, a little bit of Apple Watch news related to sensors. According to Ming-Chi Kuo, Apple had been hoping to get a new body temperature measurement sensor into the Apple Watch Series 7 last year, but they ran into some issues with the software, specifically the algorithm, and it didn't kind of pass their quality tests, and so they did not include the sensor in the Series 7, as we know. Good news is that he thinks this year... Apple could add it to the Series 8. It's still going to be a challenge because of that software. Basically, the underlying issue is that the and a watch, just a sensor sitting on your skin, can't really measure your overall core body temperature via hardware. So the algorithm has to kind of figure that out. And of course, they want it to be as accurate as possible. And it's critical to the feature Uh, it's really because your skin temperature quickly varies depending upon your environment, right? You're moving in and out of warm and cold environments, and that's going to affect your skin temperature. So the algorithm software is going to have to compensate for that and kind of calculate your core body temperature. It's really, really tricky. And so the feature is not necessarily guaranteed for this year's model either, according to Ming-Chi Kuo, but it's sounding like Apple's hoping to get that in there. So we may finally have uh, kind of a new sensor and a new feature in Apple Watch coming this year so stay tuned for that but with that that is going to do it for the news for this week before we move on i do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor and that is collide collide sends employees important timely and relevant security recommendations for their linux mac and windows devices right inside Slack. It's perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Clyde educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. And I have to say firsthand, uh, I work in e-commerce, and this is something we deal with. Our IT systems need to be tightly controlled and tightly locked down, but it's really frustrating when you're an end user and you're not able to kind of do the things you want and get things done. And overall, it just feels like you're not trusted. And that's what's great about Collide, because it can bring... IT admins and end users together and rebuild that trust. Clyde knows that end users are the IT admins' most significant untapped resource and are actually the key to solving some of their most challenging to fix security issues, including instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes, and teaching end users how to store those securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. Those are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. Just visit collide.com slash maccast to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash maccast 
Enter your email when prompted to receive your free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. Try it out at collide.com slash maccast. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash maccast. And a big thank you to Collide for their support of the show. Last time on the MacCast, we helped a listener with suggestions for cleaning and optimizing a growing photo library that was stored on an external drive. And as always, following episodes, I get great feedback and tips and other information from those of you in the community. And I wanted to share some of that follow-up with you uh, in this episode. Keith wrote in to say there's a great feature if you use Pixelmator Pro that really helped him out when he was working on a scanning project. Um, I will have a link to Pixelmator Pro in the show notes at maccast.com. I want to say it costs about 50 bucks. It is a great application, great alternative to Photoshop. If you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. Um, but he said when you're using the straightening and cropping tool in Pixelmator, in Pixelmator Pro, there apparently is a checkbox setting that says delete cropped pixels and what this does is actually after you make a cropping it gets rid of the cropped pixels so we had been talking about the fact that photos you know it keeps that history it keeps that original uh, so you can always go back to it pixelmator has a similar kind of feature when you're cropping where it can keep all of the extra stuff outside your crop um, and your straightening. But if you really don't need that and you want to save some storage space, you can use this option and then it will actually uh, destructively basically crop that image if that's what you really want. And so in his scanning project, Keith would scan, bring it into uh, Pixelmator, do all the cropping and straightening there with the delete cropped pixels option on there, which would reduce the size of the file, and then he would import that into photos. He mentions that if you are doing this for a scanning project, you probably also want to disable Pixelmator's setting that converts your imported photos into the Pixelmator file format. There's a setting a checkbox for import JPEG, PNG, and TIFF images so you'll want to double check that setting as well. Daniel also emailed me to recommend that another place you might want to check for large files is inside the video album. So photos will bring in videos from your iPhone and other videos. And as you might imagine, videos can take up a lot of your storage space. So you might want to check and make sure you don't have any just like Extra videos, I'm like, I sometimes take those ones where I just accidentally hit the video button when I meant to take a photo, and then you have like a couple second clip of really nothing, nothing you really want to save. So you could remove those. You could also archive some of your older video files, and that'll likely save a lot of storage space. And uh, he also mentioned that since this particular this particular listener was storing his photo library on an external hard drive that if he wasn't already using an SSD, you might consider updating to an SSD drive from a standard hard drive to get better performance. Because he specifically mentioned that the larger the photo library got, the slower it was getting. So you might be able to just, you know, straight upgrade from a spinning hard drive to an SSD and eliminate that problem altogether. Uh, Obviously, SSD is going to cost you a little more per uh, gigabyte, but something to look into as the prices the prices of SSD drives have come down and continue to come down. So definitely we're checking that out. 
And then Josh asks an interesting question to ponder uh, because he was thinking, you know, it would be really great. And I think this is something we talked about in that episode to be able to just eliminate all of the photos that are maybe blurry or not high quality. Maybe they're cropped badly and those sorts of things. And he says, you know, with all the AI technology out there surrounding photos, uh, how come we can't just find blurred photos? And he thought to do something that I thought was pretty smart because, you know, uh, photos now has that feature where it can detect certain kinds of images. So you could type dog or cat or bird or flower or tree or mountains or beach or whatever. And it will find those photos if you use iCloud Photo Library. And so it can actually find that photo, those photos. And it's because it uses AI technology to go through and analyze the images. Josh said, why can't it find blurry images? And I thought that was really interesting the only thing that I thought, or the main reason I thought it might not work or be very difficult is that photos often are intentionally blurry, especially in the background. Think of portrait mode and bokeh, right? People want that effect, or sometimes you blur images just for artistic effect, but you still could just use that as like a filter to kind of find all your blurry photos and then just get rid of the ones that are actually just bad photos. Um, it'd also be cool, like I said, if it could find poor cropping, you know, it does do the face detection and it can tell where uh, people are in portrait photos. So maybe if someone's face is half cut off, it could show you all of those images and maybe you don't want those. Uh, so auto identifying them and just sort of grouping them so that you can then filter them by hand could be really, really helpful. And it's not a feature that Apple has in there right now, but maybe it's something they could add in the future. And there was a thought that maybe there would be a third-party app that could do it, but Josh did a little looking. I did some looking myself, and I didn't find anything worthwhile. I think there is an app out there, but it's got pretty bad ratings. So if anybody knows of a photo app or a way to quickly identify bad or blurred photos in a photo library that works well and is a quality bit of software, let us know about it, maccast at gmail.com. But this, this was a great example of a bunch of really great tips and tricks and, and conversations that came up after we talked about something here on the MacCast. So if you have something to add to this conversation, great. Shoot me an email. Send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. I also received a very interesting technical question this week from listener Rick and it sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole regarding flash storage SSDs and Thunderbolt connections uh, specifically he wrote in and he said what is the point of having a cable that supports transfer speeds of 40 gigabits per second referring to Thunderbolt 4 if an SSD can only read and write at speeds of 2.8 gigabits per second and that actually, you might already know, and you might already be thinking this, brings up the first point I want to discuss, and that is how SSD speeds are generally reported versus uh, connector or cable speeds. And it gets a little bit confusing because typically when you're looking at SSD performance, the number that you will see is you'll see read and write speeds reported as megabytes per second, MB. S megabytes per second. 
transfer capabilities of cables and interfaces like USB 4 and Thunderbolt 4 are generally reported as gigabits per second, gigabits per second. So that thing confuses most people, and it even has confused me from time to time, and it's pretty common, and it's the bytes versus bits. And so a lot of people try to convert by taking the read-write speed of the SSD, which is in megabytes per second, and dividing that by 1,000 or 1024 and assuming that they're going to get a gigabits per second value, but you're not. You're getting a gigabytes per second value. So you are going to have to go back to the whole bits to bytes thing, which is converting by 8. So if your SSD speed is... Um, in megabytes per second, what you have to do is you have to take that value, multiply that by 8, and then divide by 1024. So say you have a read-write speed of 2800 megabytes per second. You multiply that by 8 to get megabits per second, then divide by 1024, and then you will get gigabits per second, which is 21.875 or about 22 gigabits per second when you're converting a SSD that has a 2800 megabits per second, say, write speed. So that is 22 gigabits per second, far below the theoretical maximum transfer speed of a Thunderbolt 4 cable of 40 gigabits per second. So Uh, It's not 2.8 gigabits per second. It actually is 22 gigabits per second. Uh, So a more direct way actually is to know that one gigabit per second is roughly equal to 125 megabytes per second. So you can literally take the megabytes per second value, divide by 125, not 1024, to get the gigabits per second value. So that's the first thing we have to get through. So now that we know how to convert correctly, we can use our new maths to convert USB 4 Thunderbolt for interfaces speeds of 40 gigabits per second to megabytes per second by doing the opposite of what we just did, multiplying 40 gigabits per second by 125, which gives us a megabytes per second speed of 5,000 or almost double the theoretical maximum rate of even the fastest SSDs. And we're talking about external SSDs here, not internal. We'll get to the whole internal thing in a moment. Um, But before we get to that, there's a little bit of a rub when it comes to Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt 4 transfer rates. Now, in theory, they can do up to 5,000 megabytes per second, right? But they actually have a maximum transfer rate of twenty, about 2750 megabytes per second, not 5,000. And you're going, Adam, what are you talking about? And no, my math here is not wrong. That is because Thunderbolt 4, while it does have a maximum bandwidth of 40 gigabits per second, not all of that bandwidth actually can be used for data transfers. 8 gigabits per second can only be used for video, that's displays. So you're left with 32 gigabits per second available. Uh, That's PCIe 3.0, 4 lanes at 8 
gigabits per second for data. But then there is PCIe 8-bit, 10-bit encoding. That means that each 8-bit data byte is converted to a 10-bit transmission character, and that adds some overhead along with additional overhead for Thunderbolt itself, and you are left with about 22 gigabits per second left over for your data. But that's actually okay because doing our new maths again, if you have a read-write speed of about 2750 megabytes per second, that is going to be about the fastest rate for most PCIe NVMe external SSD drives these days. Uh, as a matter of fact, according to Tom's hardware, about the fastest SSD that you can get out there is, uh, according to Macworld's benchmarks, the Samsung X5 SSD external drive and their benchmark showed speeds of about 2200 megabytes per second write and 2400 megabytes per second read so you can get faster as i mentioned internal speeds with the right connectors interfaces and controllers and it's one of the reasons why apple does soldered on ssds you know everybody hates that but it is great for performance um, and the storage in the current M1 Max, as a matter of fact, depending upon the model that you have, is capable to benchmark out at somewhere up to 6,500 to 7,000 megabytes per second write speeds and around 5,500 megabytes per second read speeds. Um, but again, those are internal drives. So if you're just looking at external drives, you can figure you're going to get about 2,200 megabytes per second megabytes per second write and 2400 megabytes per second read and that fits under the 2750 megabytes per second speed of thunderbolt which translates to about 22 gigabits per second uh, for that connector and that interface so hopefully i didn't make that all confusing um but just when you think you're out of the woods you didn't think it'd be that easy, did you? Here's the thing. There are many other places and ways that things can get bottlenecked in terms of transfer speed. So it's not just your SSD drive. It's not just your connectors and your cables. It can be a myriad of other things. There's the drive type and the internal interface, as we kind of talked about, right? Apple solders these things on. You have SATA, you have SATA 3, you have PCIe, and they all have their own limits. You have the storage interface that is actually in your enclosure, USB, Thunderbolt, and within that interface, you have all kinds of different connectors, right? USB 3.1 Gen 1 or Gen 2, Thunderbolt Gen 1, Gen 2, or 3.4, which are pretty similar, almost the same. Um, if you have an external enclosure, the type of enclosure, the controller, the interface on that, and then you have your cables and adapters and all those sorts of things. So if you're looking for the highest performance, highest speed, you've got to match all these things up. You've got to pay attention to connectors. And while we're at it, one quick word on cables, and I think we've discussed this in the past, but... They matter. The kinds of cables you get, the types of cables will affect your speed and performance, the length, 
whether they're passive Thunderbolt cables versus active cables. You want active cables if you need to get the best performance over longer distances. And that's because a passive cable transmits the electrical signals over a copper wire without any intervention or boosting of the signal, where an active cable uses transceivers on either end to regulate the data transfer over the cable, and that allows it to go over longer distances. So, for example, a passive Thunderbolt 3 cable can do 40 gigabits per second only at up to uh, about half a meter. Uh, If you go to a 2-meter passive Thunderbolt 3 cable your data transfer rate actually gets halved to 20 gigabits per second. Now, if you go with a Thunderbolt 4 passive cable, uh, it can do 40 gigabits per second over 2 meters. But if you start to need to get longer, that's when you're going to want to be looking into active cables. So again, pay attention to everything. You need to check the specs and rating of every piece in your chain to make sure that they're all matching up, they're all within an acceptable range for your application, and you're not introducing any bottlenecks. And so, like I said, it was a great, interesting question from Rick. Rick, I probably went into way more detail than you actually wanted. Like I said, we're down the rabbit hole. And Again, I'm not an expert in this stuff. Um, It's all pretty new to me. I did a lot of research to figure this out. So hopefully I got all my details right. And I am sure our community will back me up if I missed anything or misspoke. Um, You know, even just talking back and forth between megabytes per second and gigabits per second, uh, it's possible I could have flopped them back there. So I'm sure you'll let me know. But hopefully... That kind of explains uh, SSDs and where you might run into bottlenecks if you're looking for the fastest performance, especially with external drives. Okay, last thing I have for you for this week was an email from Wayne, and he says, Hey, I've been a Quicken user for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I currently still use Quicken 2016 and it's no longer going to be supported by Intuit and I'm not really interested in getting the latest version because it's only available via subscription and he's not a person who's into subscription apps and so he's asking for an alternative preferably free although I think that may be a tall order when it comes to banking apps but I could be wrong happy to be proved wrong and that's because I am actually going to have to throw this out to you in the community because I really don't use banking apps anymore. Last time I actually used a banking app, I was a big fan of iBank from IG Software. It actually still exists and it's now called Banktivity. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. I think it's still a great option, but just not for Wayne because it's a subscription app. It costs $45 a year, which I think is a pretty decent price. I don't think that's too bad for a really good banking app. It didn't seem like Quicken was overly priced either. I want to say they had different plans ranging from somewhere around 50 bucks to 75 bucks and up, depending upon whether you need business or home or whatever it might be. And I know there's a lot of Quicken fans out there. So I don't know, Wayne, maybe consider upgrading to Quicken. I mean, again, if you're getting a lot of value out of it, it seems like the value would 
be there. But maybe you just don't use your banking app all that frequently. So I did a little bit more research into some of the apps that are out there. I didn't find anything that looked particularly great for free. Although, again, maybe a member of the MacCast community knows of something. But I found a couple of paid apps that, again weren't too expensive and they were one-time purchases. Two good options to me and I've actually heard about these apps. I've never personally used them um, but I do know people out there who are fans and I know people in our community who use these. There is Money Dance and I'll have again links to these in the show notes at maccast.com and also Money Spire and they seem to have almost all the key features you would want. The ability to integrate with online banking, to do reporting, to do reminders, to have a mobile version so you can get it on your mobile device. Um, I think at least one of them even does investments, which is usually the thing when people ask me about banking apps that uh, they have a hard time leaving Quicken for. Quicken, I guess, does a pretty good job from what I understand if you have uh, investments. Uh, So, you know, that seems to be in there. It looks like they'll do bill paying. Um, again, I don't have a lot of experience with these apps, but if you do and want to send in a quick two to three minute review of your favorite banking app and maybe talk about some of the significant features and what you like about it, that would be awesome. And we can pass that along to Wayne. So is there another app that you use or recommend that I haven't talked about? Do you use one of these apps that uh, I found and want to sing its praises. Let us know about it, maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thanks for hanging out with me for another one. I'd like to let you know that bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, or maybe you have a recommendation for Wayne on a banking app, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You can also call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at Maccast. Com. And finally, if you want to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast, you can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. That is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Yeah.